And I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We're still marching our way through that gospel, the action-packed gospel of Mark. And we're going to be covering a little section that's power-packed, verses 31 through 37 today. But I have to preface our dive into this section by saying that life is really difficult when you can't speak. I was concerned about that about 5 o'clock yesterday after having attended that game, which was alluded to by Steve, because I, I, was, I made a promise to myself, protect your voice, you have to preach tomorrow. Protect your voice, protect your voice. And then a game broke out, and I found myself using much more of my, my voice than I expected to. I could barely talk at the end of the game, but thankfully... God restored my voice with a good night's rest, and so here we are. And he's given me a great word to speak to you about today from Mark chapter 7. But oh, what a game. <laughs> um, let me begin by saying that we had a serious time of uh, no talking on the part of my wife for a time. That was way back when our kids were quite young, and she had a node on her vocal cords. And it was difficult because they did a little surgery and they just shaved it off ever so carefully because you can really damage the vocal cords and she can sound like Marge Simpson if you're not careful. But fortunately, they did a great job and then they said, voice rest for 30 full days and they will evaluate from there. Total voice rest. Not even whispering because whispering moves those cords. So she got a couple of pads. One of them was what we see here on the right it was a peanuts pad and you could write with the stylus on that plastic and it would show up as kind of like a carbon footprint of what you're, what you're writing. The one on the left is what kids use today, but we didn't have electronics back then. Electricity hadn't been invented yet. <laughs> and so we had to use these things and they didn't require recharging. All you had to do is just lift the plastic and whoosh, it disappears and you can start over again. So our oldest daughter was able to read some, so Joy was able to do that. But mostly, I was the interpreter. So she would write notes to me, and I would try to interpret those things. And it was a scary time, because when she can't talk at all, and she's got kids to take care of, and a husband who doesn't have a clue, it was a difficult season. But we've also discovered that isolation occurs when you can't speak, and when you can't hear, when both of those things are present. We have some friends dear friends from the deaf congregation over in Ann Arbor, what used to be Packard Road Baptist Church, and they have some good sign language people who do a marvelous job interpreting the service for them. But one of the things they say when they were telling us about what it's like to be in a deaf community, you can feel invisible. Because if there are hearing people around you and they know you can't really hear, then all of a sudden they just tend to exclude you and treat you like you're a nobody. And they'll be chatting away. And if you're not a really good lip reader or if they're not signing to you, then you're completely isolated. And so they have to work hard to work themselves past that and to let people know, I can read your lips. So if you'll look at me and speak very, you know, enunciate a lot, you don't have to speak louder. That won't help. But just move your mouth and I can read that okay. So we learned to do some of that. Joy and I had a funny experience with a deaf congregation when we were on tour when we were first married. And we figured out that sometimes we can try to communicate with them, including using ASL. It doesn't always work. Because when you're musical, you tend to put beats to things and we're rhythmic. And they were teaching us a song and they got us up in front because we had been presenting some music to them. They said, we're going to teach you a song. 
And then you get to help sign with us. So you just follow our lead. So they had a teacher and they taught it to us and stuff. And it was standing on the promises, standing on the promises. of And we knew that one quite well, but they were saying it was supposed to be something like standing on the promises. But when we were doing it, we were doing, and they started laughing. And they can't hear themselves like this man in this particular section of Scripture. He could make noises, but they couldn't hear themselves laugh. And their laughter was kind of funny to us because it's not the same kind of laughter that we're used to. And we heard a lot of people doing that. And we thought, I don't know what we're doing wrong, but we know that something's up. So we had to wait until after the service. And one of them explained to us, they said, you were singing, jumping on the soda pop, jumping on the soda pop. (laughs) So now we know how to sing the other part of that hymn. <laughs> and it's tough to communicate with some people, but we did. So there are different types of failure to hear, too. In this particular case, this guy was completely deaf. He could not hear anything. Sometimes we husbands know about selective hearing. Can I get an amen for that? Yes. And then sometimes we know that there's a sort of selective hearing on the part of people that they will hear you, but they won't really take what you're saying at face value. They won't treat you with respect. And so we feel like we're unheard even though we are speaking. For example, one of my several jobs when I was working my way through college and trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was working at a place where we made closet doors. It was called Kohako. They were the abbreviation of the names of the two owners and they made closet doors and they would put them on trucks and the installers would take them out to these housing tracks in the Phoenix Greater Valley area and then they would take them in and install them and that's what we made and it wasn't a huge factory it was fairly small and they had several simple rules for what you were supposed to do so that things would operate smoothly but some people weren't following those rules and I went into the co-owner and my boss and said I think it might be a great idea and I know I'm a newbie and I know I haven't been here very long but for my sake and the sake of some other people around do you think it might be a good idea to have a team meeting with everybody who's doing manufacturing so we can just remind everybody that we have this process for that purpose so that they'll know this is why we have to put the right size door in the right stack so that when the people who are organizing those trucks will load the right size doors into the right stack so that they get put on the truck because there are about three different steps that have to go there and some people are just not caring about that. So they would just kind of lean a door up against a stack and not even look to see if it was the right stack or not. So what happens is these guys get out to the job site, which could be more than an hour's drive away from the shop, and they get 16 of the 17 doors installed and realize that that 17th is the wrong size. So what happens is we've got to send somebody out the next day or some other time, and it's a waste of money, it's a waste of some guy's time, and I thought, if we just have one team meeting, man, it could take 15 minutes. We could simplify this process and maybe everything could work right. And I was, you know, I was going to my one wing on my Enneagram personality type and I wanted things to be precise. And I was really getting up in the pictures about it. So I told him about that and I thought, I'm going to solve the problem because I have clearly outlined to him what I think the problem is and how it can be fixed. And I came away from that meeting thinking, my job here is done. (laughs) But you know what? My job there wasn't done. Because all he said was, that's a pretty good pretty good idea. I'll have to think about that. You know what that means, right? No team meeting ever took place. People kept putting bad doors on the wrong stacks. It was a mess. I didn't last long in that job. 
Um, fortunately, God called me to a different ministry, and I was able to start doing ministry of music stuff. And uh, I think that it's frustrating for all of us when we think we're telling a truth. You know, I'm pretty sure this is the truth, but nobody's hearing it, and they're not responding to it. And we feel not just disrespected, but sometimes we feel kind of slighted in a way when people treat us that way. And we need to realize that sometimes we make other people feel that way. I've had to look back. God convicted me about that because I've had people come up to me in church and say, man, I got a great idea. And I want to be kind to them and say, it is a good idea. I'll have to ponder that. And I think, but I've done to them the same thing that my boss did to me. I've thought about it, but I haven't actually acted on it. So I had to repent from that and say, God, help me to be a good listener and to let them know that if it's not going to work, that I have tried and we figured out a reason why it's not so that we can at least communicate. But just to ghost them is not a good way to do that. So maybe you've had some similar situations. Maybe you have tried really hard to have a truthful conversation with somebody about something you think is important, and they're just not really feeding anything back to you to make you feel that they've gotten it. Let's learn some things about hearing and speaking clearly from this passage. And let me first read right through the passage, and we'll start unpacking it a bit. Mark 7, 31 through 37. I'm reading today from the NLT, the New Living Translation. I love BibleGateway.com because it allows you to put parallels up and you can compare different translations side by side. So some of yours may be slightly differently worded, but this is the NLT. Jesus left Tyre and went up to Sidon before going back to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Ten Towns, a.k.a. the Decapolis or Decapolis. A deaf man with a speech impediment, some translations say mute, was brought to him, and the people begged Jesus to lay his hands on the man to heal him. Jesus led him away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears, and then, spitting on his own fingers, eh, he touched the man's tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. Instantly, the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. And Jesus told the crowd not to tell anyone, but the more he told them not to, the more they spread the news. They were completely amazed and said again and again, everything he does is wonderful. He even makes the deaf to hear, and he gives speech to those who cannot speak. Let's pray again. Lord, I feel inadequate for the task of speaking clearly this specific word because I know I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by grace. And so I ask that you, through your Holy Spirit, will make this word clear, knowing that you're doing it through an imperfect vessel. And I'm glad that you do that. I'm so grateful that you are our ultimate teacher. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this miracle is kind of strange. Would you agree? Uh, I would even go so far as to say that this probably isn't a normal miracle, but to say that would be an oxymoron, because all miracles, by definition, are extraordinary. (laughs) They're out of the ordinary. But this one even seems to be set apart as being even stranger than some of the other miracles because of the method. It's a weird method. Putting his fingers in the man's ears. I mean, what's up with that? And using his own saliva, and many of your translations actually use the word spit, and touching the man's tongue with his own spit, that's just gross. I don't know how you describe it, but to me, that's just gross. 
So let me give you a spoiler alert right up front. In contrast with the crude and I would say even gross method involved in this miracle, the meaning that we're going to discover is absolutely beautiful. It's gorgeous. And we sing about that meaning because it points to the cross. And we'll see why. First of all, first, verse 31, let's start unpacking this bit by bit. To Decapolis, ultimately, as we see in chapter 8, I'm, I'm leading you up. I'm giving you lots of, you know, uh, teaser ads as we get through this part because I can't wait until we get to Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8 where uh, Simon Peter gives that wonderful declaration, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, but we're not quite there yet. We had to go up into Tyre and then Sidon and then back down toward the Sea of Galilee and eventually over toward Caesarea Philippi. And when it says going from Tyre to Sidon, I looked on my map and I said, wait a minute, that said they went down and they went up and it seems backwards from what's on it. That's because it's talking about elevation. Like when you're going west from the Sea of Galilee, you're going up into the mountains. And so there are other places that would say, oh, they went up into this place. And for us looking at a map, we would go, wait a minute, they're going the wrong direction. But it's talking about elevation. Just so you'll know, that one's free, no extra charge. They headed toward the lake, the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, same body of water, different names. He's in that region known as the Decapolis. Deca means tin. Polis means city, like Indiana Polis. A city in Indiana, or Indianana, as one person said. The ten cities. This region was consolidated under Roman leadership because, and this is going to become important, they were trying to get some stronger alliances there because they feared a Jewish uprising in that area. Can you tell that there might be a little strife between the Jews and the Gentiles? Jews mostly on the western side of the lake, west of the River Jordan. Jordan, Jordan. That's the, the New York translation. <laughs> And east of the Jordan River, which is mostly Gentile back then, because the Decapolis going all the way down happens to be, by the way, if you recall back several weeks ago at chapter 5, where the demoniac was healed and made whole by Christ. That was also the Ten Cities region. And he wanted to go with Jesus. He says, man, you've made me whole. I was living in the tombs, and now I'm a real person living and clothed and in my right mind. I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no, I think it's better for you to stay here. Why would Jesus do that? I think we're going to see why. Uh, verse 32, friends brought him. Interesting. So this man had a speech impediment, or he was mute, mostly mute. He could make some sounds, but it, it wasn't audible to us as being words. And he really couldn't hear. He was deaf. But he was capable of walking. So if somebody had managed to communicate to him somehow that there was this healer, this guy who's doing wonderful things, he could have gotten there. But the friends actually brought him to Jesus. And I love that. We see that in several cases. We saw it in chapter 2, the friends that brought their paralytic friend to Jesus at the house where Jesus was teaching. Four of the guys let him down through a hole in the roof so that they get, get before Jesus. Sometimes an individual approaches Jesus, like the blind beggar. And he hears what's going on. He can't see it, but he can hear it. And he understands what's happening, so he calls out to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There was the woman approached Jesus on her own, kind of secretly, touched the hem of his garment. But then we also see other times where there are friends who are bringing people to Jesus, and this is one of those times. So here's a good application for us, though. If you're an individual and you have a need, and you think, I wonder if Jesus might be able to meet that need, you don't have to wait for a friend to bring you. You can reach out. You can approach Jesus. 
He'll meet you right where you are and just pick up a Bible and start reading the Gospels. I recommend Mark. Good place to start. Action-packed and it's short. But you can reach out to him. You don't have to wait to be invited. And here's for us believers. If we have a friend who really needs Jesus, it's okay to invite. (laughs) It's okay for us to invite them. And I would say invite them into your life first. And then start sharing the things that Christ has done in your own life so that they have a credible witness. You are that credible witness. If he's changed you, tell them about it. Proclaim the mighty acts of God and how he has made a difference in your life. There's some application for us. So why did people in this region want to take this guy to Jesus in the first place? Because last we left him in our last episode at the Ten Cities, they were telling Jesus, I think you need to go on a way out of here. Why was that? Because that was when the demoniac was healed from a legion of demons and they all went into the swine and the pigs ran down the side of the hill into the water and were drowned. Some of the people were amazed by that. They thought, wow, we've never seen anything like that. But you remember that some people were upset because they had a supply shortage of bacon. And so they were saying, Jesus, this is a very expensive miracle that you've done and it's costing us a lot. This was a whole herd. So can you go somewhere else? So why weren't they antagonistic toward Jesus when he shows up again? I think it's because that healed demoniac was telling his story. And I think a lot of other people agree with me. I've read several commentators. They said he was the guy that was left there on purpose by Jesus. Why? Because he couldn't help but talk about it. When we see something that beautiful, we can't help but remark about it. And he did. I imagine he'd been telling his story to anybody who would listen in the Ten Cities area so that when Jesus comes back again, there's been a buzz. There's a rumor going around. Oh, he's back. You remember this guy that we were talking about? They were thinking more about the healed demoniac than they were about the lost pigs at that point. And so they were excited to see what's going on there. They were moved from skeptical to curious, and some of them were eventually moved to, oh, I believe this to be true. My mom was moved that way. Back in the 60s, she had read an obscure article in our local newspaper, the Phoenix Gazette. And it said that there were these new inventions. It was jetpacks that would allow people to fly. And I thought, or my mom thought, that's strange. That sounds like Buck Rogers stuff. I'm not sure that's true. She was very skeptical. She thought, Buck Rogers, look it up. You know. <laughs> Iron Man for the slightly more. <laughs> so this is way back in the mid-60s. But more news stories started to pop up. And my mother herself was a journalist, so she was a curious reader and she had a curious mind. And there were more journalists being curious enough to check it out. And they were writing courageously, yes, I saw a demonstration. I believe this to be a true thing. I think there really is technology like that happening now. And it's amazing on the bell curve when you get the early adopters and the people that would actually go check it out, you know, and they start to warm up to a new idea. But there are all those latecomers that will... Hang on for dear life. I don't believe it, even though I've seen it with my own eyes. You know, that's the bell curve. Well, mom was somewhere in the middle. She was probably more at the top of the curve, but she did read enough news stories until finally she saw one local news story that said, NASA is going to bring a demonstration to our city. And they're going to do it in the parking lot of a major mall right on Central Avenue, Park Central Mall. So she loaded me up because I didn't have school. I think I was a preschooler and drove me down to Park Central, and there were two or three hundred people gathered around a big circle with a trailer sitting in the middle of the parking lot with a big sign that said NASA. And you know the kind of trailers like you'll see at parks that you can walk out onto a stage 
and they had a microphone there and this guy with a microphone tells us what we're going to see and i'm pretty excited because this looks like saturday morning cartoons coming to life and then he tells us how the stuff is going to work and what propels the person and how difficult it is to keep yourself from going and all that stuff and then the guy walks out and sure enough they fire this dude up and there's enough thrust back that he starts rising into the air and we're all just dumbstruck like ah, he's doing it he flew 20 feet in the air 25 and then he made a big circle around the whole crowd that was there and then he went up to about 50 feet in the air and went all the way across the mall and back to the other side came around one more loop around us and then very gently came right down onto that stage that platform again and we were gobsmacked it was like wow this is so cool so my mom had moved from extreme skeptic to curious to i believe this is true why is that because enough people kept talking about it they kept writing about it and i think that's what was happening in decapolis i think enough people kept hearing from this guy to say i'm the evidence folks i'm the guy that used to live in the tombs do you remember me you wouldn't let your kids walk home from school near where I lived because I was crazy. And I admit it, I was a nutcase. But Jesus healed me completely, and he can do that for other people too. And so some people got curious enough to come and actually see for themselves. So what does it take? When enough people share their true stories, what does it take to move somebody across from skeptical to curious? I think it takes some good evidence and that can happen with testimonies that are backed up by your lifestyle. And gratefully, I have seen a lot of that in my lifetime. I'm so grateful for that. So what do you think people around you think about Christianity? I think these days it's getting a bad rap in a lot of circles. And sometimes for good reason, because there are rascals in Christianity. I'm not going <laughs> to pretend that we haven't had some rascals that showed some of their not so Christ-like sides during some of the pandemic months. And yet, Christ is still real, and he's the one we gauge off of. We shouldn't judge a movement based on the people who aren't following the rules of that movement. And God gives us some boundaries to live within, and if we're really being transformed to be more like him every day, then we ought to be able to become the evidence for other people. For example, if you heard a lot of people that were tweeting and putting on social media, you know, I've heard that all flute players are stuck up. <laughs> Have you ever seen pictures of the orchestra, that front row, they all just look so snooty? <laughs> they're just stuck up. All flute players are stuck up. You know, you try to talk to them and they're shy and stuck up and they go, <laughs> but if you were to happen to meet our resident flute player, in our little mini chamber orchestra and get to know her even a little bit, you'd think, oh, she's the opposite of stuck up. She's so sweet and she listens well and she's kind and she's gentle and she's humble and she's always putting others first. And you'd have to say, you know what? I don't think that statement is true. I know for a fact that I've met at least one flute player who doesn't fit that description. And so that statement can't be true. Now apply that to Christianity. If you have a whole bunch of people who are tweeting and using social media to just blast Christianity and to say, these Christians, they are judgmental and they're harsh and they're exclusive and they push people away and they're always looking down their holier-than-thou noses at other people. But if you met a genuine, authentic Christ follower 
who was really transformed by him and who put other people first and who laid their own life down to show them how much Jesus loves them, they might have to say, you know what? I don't think that statement is true. Because I've met at least one who seems to be the real McCoy, the real deal. They're authentic. And if we have enough of us who are doing that, eventually they'll start to come in contact with many more than just one until finally they've moved from being skeptical to curious. And hopefully, eventually, as God continues to reveal himself and all the beautiful things he has in store for those who trust him, they'll say, I believe. And I believe this is real. So, dear believer, I need to also preface that and balance it by saying we are not God's PR department. I heard another pastor use that phrase, and I think that's true. We're not God's PR department. You're just called to be authentic. And a part of being authentic means that we don't claim to be better than we are. We're sinners. All of us have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That fits every one of us, 100%. So we're just saying, yes, I'm a sinner, and gratefully God in His grace and mercy has forgiven me and cleansed me of all my sins, and He's continuing to transform me in this lifelong process. And it's a wonderful process, even though it's filled with lots of times when I come up against stuff that I have to repent for because I ain't perfect yet. And God is so patient. And so if we're that kind of authentic believer, we don't have to try to make God sound better than he is. That's what PR does. It's kind of selling a narrative. It's putting a spin on something to make it sound better. Have we heard any of that in politics? Nah. We're not supposed to stoop to making him sound better than he is. He's wonderful. He makes everything beautiful in his time. And he is also a God of wrath. And both of those things come into play, which is why I said at the very beginning, we sang about this paradox of the gospel. There is a wrath, and he will pour it out on those who have rejected him. That's true as well. So we can't soften the gospel, but we also can't stop telling people about the goodness of God all at the same time. They both coexist. And when the reality sinks into people and we say, oh, I get it. He loves us enough to die for us so that we don't have to experience that wrath. It's his love that draws us to him. Then we start to get it and we move from skeptical to curious to I believe it's true. So we see Jesus healing. It's a weird kind of healing, I admit. Verse 33, Jesus led him, this is the deaf mute man, away from the crowd so they could be alone. He put his fingers into the man's ears. And then, spitting on his own fingers, he touched the man's tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. And instantly the man could hear perfectly, and his tongue was freed so he could speak plainly. He's never been about numbers. He has shied away from crowds. He's not doing this for the crowd. In fact, he probably pulled some of his disciples away. Otherwise, somebody would not have been there to be able to write this down. So we think that some of the inner circle disciples were here witnessing that, but the crowd wasn't. He did this most intimately. And I think that's where we start to catch the picture that we're going to look at in just a moment. It's an intimate healing. Ephatha only appears once. It's actually an Aramaic derivation of a Greek word. Some people would say, oh, he's uh, going into divination and magic, and that was a magic word. No, it's not. He knows his vocabulary. It's the only time it shows up in Scripture, but it's an Aramaic derivation of a Greek word. It's an actual word. It's not magic. This is just Jesus displaying God's power. The one word shows up here, and it means be opened. And I love that because there's power 
in God's speech. He spoke the world into existence. He can open this man's mouth and have him speak completely clearly and put his fingers in his ears and bang, he can hear as well. Here's the thing. Jesus tailors his, mess, uh, his methods to every situation. He's not limited to a method. He uses a variety of methods in healing. Sometimes he just speaks to somebody without touching them. One time he even sent the guy home and said, yeah, by the time you get home, your loved one will be healed. It'll be okay. Sometimes he just touches them, Luke 13. One time he spat on the ground. This is another one of those kind of gross ones. He made a little mud, like a poultice, and put it on this blind man's eyes. Another time it was a steady stream of things. And then he says, okay, now go wash that off. He started to wash it and said, can you see yet? No, you're like men walking around, but you look like trees. You can wash again. So it was, took a little time. It wasn't instantaneous. It was different method, all these different ways of doing that. You know what that shows me? It's not the method that fulfills God's will. It's the power of Jesus because he is God incarnate. And a lot of people throughout history have tried to make it all about the method. They thought, oh, let's replicate that. Let's say this prayer a hundred times and it will come true. I have a, a good illustration about that, in fact. And it's about some people that understand that it's not the psalm that was being quoted. It was the prayers that were effectual and mighty because God chose in his infinite grace and mercy to heal in this specific case. A few weeks ago, we had a celebration for my mother-in-law who turned 86 and many of the people came in, some from Texas and Arizona and New Mexico, some of the cousins that we hadn't seen in quite a while. And my cousin Andy, who's also a trombone player, which is why you would like him so well, uh, has also been a music teacher and a minister of music, great guy. Uh, his wife, Maria McClellan, very talented person and extremely good with gymnastics. She would teach youngsters in gymnastics when she was younger. But when she was young enough to be teaching gymnastics, but not quite, quite old enough to go through a whole lot of life, she contracted Rye syndrome. It was a diagnosis. It was a sure and steadfast diagnosis. And Rye syndrome is an awful, rapidly worsening brain disease. It's a terrible thing. It can cause confusion, personality changes, seizures. Sometimes people will go into a coma either for long periods of time or short periods of time. Those who come out of the coma sometimes will have brain damage. I mean, it's an awful disease. About 10 to 20% of the people who contract that actually pass away after being in a coma for a while. So it's nasty. So Maria's mom, who had this faith, was called in by the doctors and said, you need to call the family around because I don't think your daughter is going to make it. Maybe another 24 hours, perhaps 48, but... She's giving all indications that her organs are starting to shut down. I, I think you need to prepare yourself for the worst. So she started walking around her daughter's bed reciting Psalm 23. And she just kept reciting that and praying and reciting it and praying and reciting it and praying. And after a few hours of that, doctor came in and said, whoa. That's always a good thing when doctor says, whoa. And he said, I'm seeing some vital signs that are looking a whole lot stronger. Within six months, Maria had made such a startling discovery, uh, recovery that she was teaching gymnastics again. And Andy wrote an arrangement of Psalm 23, and he and Maria sang a duet at that birthday celebration. Wow. Now, was it the psalm? 
Was it the fact that she was able to remember and recite that psalm over and over again? Is that what healed Maria? She knows that's not the case. It was just a way for her to continue to focus on what she knew to be true in the attributes of this wonderful God who can turn beautiful things out of awful situations. And he did. In this specific case, he did. Why does he in some and not in others? I don't know. I just know he can and sometimes he does. All for his glory, whichever way that might go down. So it's not the method. So why spit? Why spit then? Is there any specific thing we're supposed to get out of that? Is there some hidden secret message that we're supposed to grasp from that? Some early Greek writers, that would be the Gentile side of this fence, used to actually think that there were some healing properties. There's one of the early doctors that we write about. His name is Galen. Happens to be my first name, but he spelled his wrong. He spelled it G-A-L-E-N, mine is G-A-Y-L-O-N. But he used to actually think that there were some healing properties in spit. Why did he think that? Maybe because sometimes animals know, like your dog, will lick their own wounds. And there's some positive bacteria that can kill the bad things and be good for the good things. But that's not supposed to mean that we're supposed to just imitate our animals at all times. That's not usually the most healthy thing. But it was written about back then. So could it have been that there were some healing properties? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. One kind of weird possible reason that's been posited by some writers, there's a story, a very obscure story in the Talmud, these oral traditions that were later written down by Jewish rabbis, about this guy that was trying to have a paternity test of some sort. Now, they didn't have DNA back then. And so he said, how can we know that this son is, actually belongs to this guy? And so he says, well, I can tell because this guy can heal people with his spit, and so can that man. So he's got to be that man's son. That's an obscure reference, wouldn't you think? Now, I think this is a good Bible study tool, and it's something that we should be aware of, that when we're reading through a bunch of commentators, and we see one that just seems way out there, it's okay for us to push it to the margin. We don't have to discount it completely and say, ah, that's rubbish. But we can say, I don't see any evidence that's really backed up from other scripture, And so, therefore, I'm going to put this right off to the side and say, that's interesting, but I want the Scriptures to show me what the Scripture means. That's the best place for us to find real uh, commentary is from the Scripture itself. So I think that might be a weird explanation. But what we do know is that Jesus tailored his method so that this man would be touched in a very specific way. Maybe he needed tactile sensation because he was deaf and couldn't speak. Maybe he needed the fingers in his ears. It's a very intimate thing, by the way. I don't know if you've tried to put your finger in somebody's ear lately. They will probably shy away from that because that's a very intimate thing to do to somebody. It's not nice. Most people go, what are you doing? But he allowed Jesus to do that. It was an intimate touch. And he could feel something going on. So that was a way of communicating. Maybe with the tongue and maybe with the looking up to heaven, maybe with that word, Maybe that was the first time that this man heard very clearly. And because he was speaking that specific word, maybe it was because that's the one word this man might have understood. I don't know. Those are all speculations. But what I do know is I can trust that God knows best how to treat each situation. And he certainly knew how best to treat this one. And so he does those things and the man is instantly healed. And we see some gorgeous contrasts here. This is when we start to turn a corner into the beauty of God. The man can't speak well. Jesus touches the man at the very point of his infirmity, and Jesus heals him. 
Then Jesus tells the crowd not to say anything about it. And the more he tells them, what do they do? They're wagging their tongues everywhere they go. They can't stop speaking about it. Then we have another contrast. The man can't hear. Jesus touches the man at the very point of his infirmity. Jesus heals the man. And now a lot of people can hear clearly because this man is a witness. And he's giving his testimony, talking about the beauty that God brings to people even at the ugliest point of their life and with the grossest method. We also know that this is a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 35. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. He's Messiah. The disciples probably would have been aware of that, so maybe this is a lesson for the disciples, even more so than for the people in Decapolis. But that also points to God's initiation in salvation. I love this. And I loved it because I got a chance to sit next to Tim's dad again at the wedding this last weekend. And he's a hoot. I really love talking with him. He's got lots of opinions and they're all good opinions and he's fun to listen to. And he said in this one specific chat, he was talking about some things that Paul had written about. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins, he said, God made you alive with Christ. And he said, I love this illustration. He says, if you're a believer, it's not like you're a swimmer who's going down for the third time. If you're still swimming, you're still alive. You've still got a little bit of strength. So even though you're nearly dead, it's not quite like, well, it's nearly dead. Prince's bride illusion there. But it's not like you're just going down for the third time. It's like you're at the bottom of the lake and you're gone. There's no heartbeat. You have only water in your lungs. There's nothing there. Dead men can't reach up for help. God had to reach down. So when Paul says you were dead in your sins, he meant that, which means that God initiates salvation, which is a beautiful thing. Because when we're at our lowest, God can still reach us where we are. And he begins that process so that we can grab a hold of that and say, it's beautiful. I love what he's offering me. Yes, I need that. I need your salvation. That's what Jesus did. When he died on the cross for us. Do you see the parallels here? This is what it started to become clear to me. That it's a beautiful thing. Even though it was an ugly method. He reached to us. He touched our greatest infirmity. Which is sin. And as gross and disgusting as the method may have been. He restores lost sinners to wholeness. If they'll just surrender to him. The way it happened. It's disgusting. The result just beautiful. I was driving to church this morning and I saw this picture played out right before me. I had to stop quickly and then I had to quickly check my mirror and hope that nobody was coming up behind me because I was lost in my thoughts and it was Stony Creek and it was early enough that nobody was there and there was a bar ditch to one side so I couldn't pull off the road so I just stopped in the middle of the road and I got out and ran around and took this shot real quickly because I see that The scripture is so right that there's no excuse for us not to see that God is beautiful and he makes beautiful things because it's all around us. Romans 1, no excuse. But when we see that, we need to understand that everything that we see that's physical points to that spiritual reality of what Christ did for us. That's what Jesus does in all of his miracles, including healing the deaf and mute man. It points to his salvation, which is available so freely to us. And I just ache for people to know that so that they can find something beautiful made out of what might have been very gross even in their own life.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for turning ugliness into beauty and for revealing yourself all over the place so that we can't help but see that you are a loving creator, creator God who creates beauty. Thank you that you're transforming saved sinners into beautiful people because we're starting to look more and more like you. And I pray that if somebody hasn't taken that step, they'll do so so they can start that transformation process as well, recognizing that they can't really even reach up to you because they're dead in their sins. But fortunately, you're reaching to them, even through this word, even through this book of Mark. And I thank you for what you're going to do in the lives of those who take that step of faith and surrender into your loving care. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.